welcome to the Eastern Front. This is Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by my friend Giselle Donnelly. I work at the American Enterprise Institute, as does Donald Budohaj. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, we have with us Carolina Hurt, who is the Russia team deputy lead at the Institute for the Study of War and an Evan Hansen fellow. We have her with us because she's authored a fantastic piece that we are going to talk about today, which is called The Kremlin's Occupation Playbook. Carolina, it's great to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start. Of course, we'll link your piece in the show notes for this episode, but maybe we can start broad as we tend to do on this podcast here. And then I'll ask ask you a question about, first of all, what has led you to write this. And I'm asking you also because I am focusing on this part in a class that I'm teaching at Georgetown. And until 2023, I'd say I had really big trouble finding literature reports that are focusing on Russia's occupation of Ukraine, the social, political, psychological, economic consequences between 2014 and 2022. And of course, we've been focusing more on it in light of the full-scale invasion. But if one wants to read a more comprehensive report, one has trouble finding it. You can find bits and pieces. So what enabled you to actually get to dedicating this work to it? And then the other thing that I want to ask you about is upfront the numbers, because the numbers look absolutely shocking. You're mentioning data that is about 5 million Ukrainians under occupation between 2014 and today, and then almost 5 million that Russia itself is claiming that they have deported or moved across the border into Russia. And you count that up to 7% of the current Russian population in, in demographic terms. So to what extent do you you think that these numbers are accurate? To what extent can we talk about these numbers as being accurate when we have little means and instruments to be able to verify these very large numbers? So take it from anywhere here. So to your first question, I think I've been very drawn to this issue because at heart at ISW, I'm a military analyst. So I spend a lot of time looking at the front line and what's going on in the front line. But I've always been very fascinated with the human cost and the human side of war. So I was very interested in understanding what was going on behind the front lines and what Russia was very deliberately doing to Ukrainians living behind the current front lines. I've always been very interested in international law and international legal norms as kind of a guiding principle. So understanding that a lot of what Russia is doing in occupied Ukraine at its base level is a violation of ex XYZ legal principle, and then wanting to delve deeper into that to understand why and how Russia is doing this on the most granular level. And I also very quickly realized that this is not the first time that Russia has done this. This occupation playbook has existed and predated 2022. So really understanding how Russia first basically tested this out when it invaded Crimea and parts of Donbass in 2014, and then looking at parallels and patterns between the occupation of Crimea and Donbass 
between 2014 and 2022, and then how that's been applied since the full-scale invasion in 2022. So I think my basic draw to this is just wanting to understand war as a deeply human endeavor and a human issue that goes beyond just drawing red lines on a map and kind of understanding where X unit is in relation to that front line and understanding that it's about the millions of people that are actually living under Russian occupation. And I think that those two things are completely inseparable. And when we're talking about war and we're talking about the political considerations behind military aid and everything, it's really important to go beyond the geography and the geopolitics of it and recognize that this is fundamentally a war for human beings. And with that being said, you raise the point about numbers. And of course, the numbers are very difficult to verify. We have no independent way to confirm Ukrainian estimates of the 5 million Ukrainians living in occupied areas. This number is really difficult to confirm because of a movement out of occupied Ukraine. That's essentially stopped since the last checkpoints have closed. It was like end of 2022 and 2023. So those numbers were fluctuating a little bit in the early phases of the war are probably more stabilized now. Can look at the population density map. And before the war, Crimea was kind of the most densely populated area of Ukraine. So they're definitely parts of occupied territories that have high population densities. But, you know, ISW cannot necessarily independently confirm the five million Ukrainians living in occupied territories, but that's generally consistent with pre-war population statistics, population density maps, etc. And then insofar as the statistics that we've used for the deportation, that 4.8 million number actually comes from the Kremlin-appointed Russian commissioner on children's rights, Maria Lvovabilova. She, on her own admission, has said that Russia, quote-unquote, accepted 4.8 million Ukrainians, 4.1 million adults, and 700,000 children. Does she have any reason to exaggerate those numbers to make them look bigger for the Russian population, for her main audience? She she definitely does. She does because the Russian project on the Russian side has been very much to portray this as a humanitarian endeavor and kind of out of the goodness of the Kremlin's heart. So there is a little bit of an incentive to overblow that number. But Ukrainians have also noted that this is probably likely accurate. The Ukrainian government struggles to confirm the identities of especially children who've been deported. The Ukrainian government has confirmed 20,000 Ukrainian children have been deported because they can confirm based off of identities, birth certificates, etc. But there's a gap in that data because Russians will often target orphans or children left without parental supervision in their deportation efforts. So the Ukrainian government firm, it's of 19,000, but less than 20,000 as of the time of this recording, I believe. But they've admitted that that number is closer to the millions based off of records, repatriation efforts, and then also Russian self-admissions. Let's talk some more about the children. Much of the press coverage of the issue, not just of deportations and stuff like that, but the occupation overall has been focused on this program uh, that the Russians have to sort of take children from Ukraine and park them with Russian families, sometimes a long way away from Ukraine. Has that been kind of a constant part of the deportation program? something that's unique or is it a sort of traditional part of the Russian playbook as you write about it? Yeah, so there's a little bit of a callback to the Soviet policy of kind of shifting populations around within the Soviet Union's claimed borders. So there's a little bit of a playbook for that. It wasn't necessarily as prevalent in the 2014 
occupation of Crimea and parts of Donbass, but has very much been the case in Ukraine since 2022. The earliest confirmation that I remember observing of the deportation and adoption scheme specifically was, I think, July or August of 2022, when the Russian Krasnodar Krai city administration was basically advertising a thousand orphans from Mariupol that were up for adoption in Krasnodar Krai, which to me very much signaled this deliberate and organized attempt to basically deport Ukrainian children to Russia and adopt them into Russian families. I touch on this on my report quite heavily, but the general principle of this is to basically rob Ukraine of its multi-generational potential, right? If you're taking children out of their homes and placing them in Russian families, you're stripping them of the core of their identity and making it very, very difficult for these children to return to their families, to return to their homeland. And that has multi-generational impacts, and intentionally so. And the closest analog that I have to this that I came across in my research was the, the Nazi policy of deporting Polish children and Germanizing them. And there are, you know, 80 and 90-year-olds living in Germany now who were taken from Poland. They don't speak a word of Polish. They don't know who their Polish families are. They only speak German. And that's a very close and eerie analog to what we're seeing the beginning of in the Ukrainian case right now. Just to follow up, my impression is that the Russians are not putting these kids in uh, Petersburg or Moscow or someplace like that, but parking them sort of deep in the countryside or in less densely populated areas. Is that so, or am I misreading the situation? Not necessarily, actually. We've been able to confirm upwards of 20 camps for children. So one of the schemes, right, is deporting children to participate in health and wellness camps, summer vacation camps, that sort of thing, from which some children are adopted. We've been able to confirm the presence of these camps as close to Ukraine as Krasnodar Krai, and then as far from Ukraine as Vladivostok, which is closer to Alaska than it is to Ukraine. There also is a program to adopt Ukrainian children into families in Moscow. The Moscow Commissioner on Children's Rights, who's a subordinate of the Kremlin, like the, the overall Russian Commissioner on Children's Rights, she works with Lvova Bielova to basically adopt deported children into Moscow families. So it's very much a widespread effort. It's not necessarily silent in any part of Russia regionally. And I think that's very intentional to basically spread these children and these centers and children's homes across the country very, very broadly. And it makes repatriation more difficult as well, right? If you think about the, the kind of logistics of an individual person having to travel to the far east coast of Russia to repatriate and find a child, that's a very difficult endeavor. You started this conversation by saying, Karolina, that although we see Russian depravities on the grand scale in the current full-fledged, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The playbook predates that invasion, and we've seen manifestations of, of, of some of these policies, practices earlier in Crimea, in, in, in the Donbass. That reminded me of a meeting that Yulia and I had in Kiev a year and a half ago with Ukrainian journalist Stas Asayev, who had been held for over two years in an illegal prison in the Donbass. He had been sentenced by the bogus Supreme Court of the Donetsk People's Republic to 15 years for being essentially a stringer for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And he was lucky he got out as part of a prisoner exchange program. He has a book, which we can also link to in the show notes, called Torture Camp on Paradise Street. And, and so he has been an important voice drawing attention to the existence of sort of illegal system of 
prisons and torture centers. He himself was subject to mock executions. You don't really get that much into into this stuff in the report, but but do you have a sense of how sort of sophisticated or lawless or well organized the apparatus of repression and surveillance and imprisonment is? In these in these occupied areas, and how big, you know, say the prison population is of Ukrainians who were not willing to just go along with the occupation. Right. So the reporting on, as as you call it, the repression apparatus is actually quite robust, uh, coming from a lot of Ukrainian partisan sources operating out of occupied Ukraine. Unfortunately, you really don't have to look much further than Izum or Bucha or Kherson city to really see these atrocities and the way that Russians have basically systematized atrocity as a form of law enforcement, that sort of mechanism. So we saw the appearance of torture cells, etc. in pretty much every major settlement that Russia has occupied and then Ukraine has liberated. So there's no reason to doubt that that's not happening in the currently occupied territories. As was the case in Crimea from 2014 on and to this day, the Crimean Tatar population has been at the receiving end of extreme brutality on the part of the FSB. So we've seen very much a, a systemic effort to basically define any sort of ostensibly anti-Russian or pro-Ukrainian activity as illegal. And then that's met with extreme brutality. The FSB, Roskvardia, the Chechen servicemen who are operating behind the Russian lines have notoriety as being kind of brutal law enforcers. And the basically very broad definition of what is considered criminal or anti-Russian activity in occupied territories is used as, as a form of Oppression and a form of spreading fear and coercion for people to adhere to the occupation regimes. So we've seen that the analogs and the, the awful cases out of Bucha and Izium and Kherson City, that's absolutely happening in occupied areas. And it's difficult to understand what the prison population of occupied areas is because the Russian statistics on this are really difficult to find and even more difficult to verify. But we also know that Russians are forcibly recruiting Ukrainians out of prisons and sending them to the front line, which is a very, very clear violation of the Geneva Convention. So yes, absolutely, this apparatus of repression is functioning in occupied territories and is actually kind of central to this basically propagation of fear that is very much the core of the Russian occupation. So I want to go back. We've talked a little bit about minors, children, and you've now sort of hinted a little bit towards the adults in terms of demographics. But I want to go back to, again, the sheer numbers of 7% of the population of Russia with the backdrop that you're explaining in your report that Russia already had and continues to have major demographic issues, people not having enough children. Russia has a history of luring possible Western cooperation and agents by offering them adoption when it's not possible in the West. And also the prisoners of war that you just mentioned on the front line. So with all the major demographic issues across the board, referring to minors and to adults, to what extent have you been able to observe how Russia attempts to forcibly integrate these 
these people into Russian society and actually use them. Kids for adoption, you mentioned that briefly, and of course there the data is hard to, to assess, but also adults in terms of forced labor, either as prisoners of war on the front lines, the most horrendous psychological thing that one can imagine. There's a good reason why this is forbidden through the Geneva Convention, but also in terms of filling the gaps in the workforce. So when we're looking at these millions of Ukrainians that are many of them adults, many of them free, not in prison in Russia, how is Russia trying to use them? Are they forcing them to work in specific jobs? Are they keeping them together or separating them like the children? What have you been able to find out there? Yeah, so the most immediate response I have for this is actually pertaining to the children. And then I'll caveat by saying that it's very difficult to maintain visibility into what happens to Ukrainian adults after they've entered Russia after being deported. There's some de jure, I guess, outcomes that I can talk about. But first and foremost, I'll talk about the issue of children. We have anecdotes from Lvova Bielova herself. Basically, she adopted, quote unquote, adopted a 16-year-old boy from Mariupol. And she's talked at length about how when she first adopted him, he was basically talking well about Ukraine, talking poorly about Russia. And after kind of going to Russian school and spending time with Russian children his age, he adopted a much more pro-Russian mentality and started calling his Ukrainian friends and family demons, etc., so that social programming is very much employed against children through the school system to eradicate Ukrainian identity and instill very pro-Russian ideologies in children. And then, of course, these children grow up with those ideologies and as Russian citizens in the Russian Federation. We do lose visibility into what happens to adults who've been deported, likely by design. What I will say is that in terms of kind of the manipulations that are happening within occupied areas, specifically targeting adults, a lot of it is highly coercive, right? People will be forced to get Russian passports or work in Russian-controlled enterprises at the threat of losing access to medicine or food or threats of their family. That's that repression apparatus kicking in again. It's likely the same within Russia because once you've been deported to a foreign country, that kind of state of coercion and intimidation that you live in is very heightened. So I imagine that it'd be quite easy to force deported Ukrainians to work in Russian enterprises or to, to kind of fill those like labor shortages on the Russian side, which is also kind of how it is with the, the POWs. Because if you think about it, you're really not. They said that the, these these guys were given the option to fight against Ukraine. There's no option if you're in a Russian prison because you've been captured or if you're Ukrainian civilian who's been deported to Russia, you really don't have an option. And I think that's something that gets lost in this conversation is that Russia is very good at convincing the West and even Ukraine that the Ukrainians living in occupied areas or the Ukrainians that they've deported have a choice. And there is no choice. There is no choice in a basically coercive situation that violates so many international laws and norms. Can I ask you about the flip side of these deportations, namely the movement of Russians into occupied territory? So there have been some reports of, you know, Mariupol real estate being sort of sold out to the Russians and Russians moving in. Obviously, some of these areas are still war zones, so I imagine they wouldn't be terribly attractive for people to invest in and, and move there. But do you have a 
sense of the movement in the other direction that could result in possibly permanent changes to the structure of the population and its ethnic composition. Absolutely. So this is one of the backbones of Russia's effort to depopulate Ukraine of Ukrainians and repopulate it with Russians to basically make it seem intrinsically or inherently part of Russia. So Crimea was a really interesting example of this in 2014. The second the invasion started, we saw up to a million Russians, according to Crimean estimates, arrive in Crimea. A lot of these were military personnel uh, because of the Black Sea Fleet presence in Crimea. So military personnel, their families, law enforcement personnel and their families. So that was kind of the first movement into Crimea, this repopulation with Russian servicemen for the most part. And then Crimea, because of its geographic location was quite easy to cast as an attractive tourist destination. So there was a huge relocation of Russians, especially from Siberia and colder regions of Russia to Crimea. And that was kind of the first time we saw this repopulation playbook really come to fruition. This has also been the case in Ukraine since 2022. So the first instance of this was basically the importation of occupation administration officials so lower level Russian civil servants that were basically staffing occupation administrations and carrying out occupation agendas in occupied areas. The head of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, has been particularly notorious in this. The majority of his cabinet is actually Russians from Russia. So that's been kind of the first wave. And then, of course, we're seeing this, as you mentioned, what's happening in Mariupol. Mariupol is, because it's such a large city and it was an economic hub before the full-scale invasion, Russian officials are very much trying to paint it as an attractive place for Russians to move. So they're offering preferential mortgages to people with Russian passports to basically attract people to move in to Mariupol. Pushilin has basically said that they're going to make Mariupol into like a tourist resort to basically attract more people to move. Move there. There's also very, very concerted efforts to get Russian construction workers, for the most part, into Mariupol to work on construction projects and then eventually like relocate and live in Mariupol. It's an interesting case study in this wider repopulation campaign. It's a little more difficult elsewhere in Ukraine because as you get closer to the front lines, it becomes really difficult to basically cast that as like an attractive repopulation or relocation opportunity. But we're definitely seeing it in larger Ukrainian cities that are behind the front lines. So, for example, Mariupol, Berdyansk, Melitopol, we know that there are Russians who are moving there to take up civil servant positions, become teachers, become doctors, become military instructors, that sort of thing, as well as the relocation of Russian military personnel and also efforts to make these larger occupied cities attractive cities for Russians to live in. It's absolutely a parallel effort to the depopulation effort. Well, I can't wait to put down some money on an Azovstal condominium. <laughs> I want to get on the bottom floor of this, which is probably the only floor that there is at the moment. That's exactly what they're trying to do. <laughs> you know, to be serious for a moment, your paper in this conversation remind us of the moral dimension of this conflict, which is so stark and so terrible, yet so seldom considered. Carolina, I'm just interested in this regard to say, and this may seem, you know, very uh, meta or self-referential, what the response has been to the report. Have people contacted you or are people looking the other way, which they have too frequently done? I think generally the response has been good. I've been contacted 
invited by teams like yours to kind of talk more about it, expand on it, which I think is really important, especially as we're very much bogged down in obviously the critical, but the very political discussions on passing aid right now, which are very much underlined by this idea of war as war for meters of land as opposed to war for human beings, right? So I'm very appreciative of the response that this paper has gotten because it's been overwhelmingly positive and it's been people kind of wanting to talk to me more about this human and moral dimension, which to me is really the underlying factor of why I do what I do and why I think a lot of people in this space are doing what they do and what we should really be talking about when we're talking about passing aid for Ukraine or maintaining support for Ukraine, that sort of thing. Can I ask you about the scenario under which these territories get liberated and deoccupied, assuming that the United States gets its act together and we help the Ukrainians and, and Ukrainians succeed. So arguably, you know, the, the longer these places remain under Russian occupation, the more difficult it will be to reverse the changes that the Russians put in place, whether they have to do with transfers of population. So you write about how it's going to be difficult to, you know, get the Ukrainians back. There'll be, you know, Russians living in that place. But also from a sort of internal Ukrainian perspective, um, there'll be people who lived there through the occupation. Some of them will have, you know, gone along with the new regime, maybe worked in the regional administration and so on and so forth. There will have to be a sort of process akin to a sort of denazification almost. Obviously, this is purely speculative, but from, you know, where you sit, what's your sense of how much the Ukrainians today are thinking about that process and its intricacies and, and, and maybe sort of looking for examples from around the world on how it could be done, how transitional justice could be sort of pursued in a way that sort of brings these territories back and heals some of the wounds? That's a wonderful question. And Ukraine is absolutely thinking about this. No one is laboring under any illusions that this is going to be a easy process, right? Especially with the territories that have been occupied since 2014, that the occupation playbook has very much done its job in. Ukraine knows that this is heartbreaking and difficult. The Ukrainian Ministry of Reintegration has plans for exactly that, the reintegration of territories that have been annexed and occupied since 2002, and also a whole script for what is to be done about Crimea and Donbass that have been occupied since 2014. So Ukraine is thinking about this. This is very much part of the Ukrainian uh, political conversation right now. It's also part of the way that Ukraine is trying to kind of think legally about how to expand legal frameworks to deal with dismantling occupation regimes and prosecuting collaborators effectively and basically repatriating and reintegrating Ukrainians into Ukraine. I don't know the specifics of these sorts of talks and deals, etc., but I know that they're there and I know that they're in place. And Ukraine is absolutely planning for this contingency. And they're planning for it not just for the 2022 occupied territories, they're planning for it for the 2014 occupied territories. In terms of some of the difficulties, Russians have been quite effective in setting up networks of collaborators and also importing Russians, which will make that reintegration aspect difficult. This is something that I need to look into more personally. It's a personal research interest of mine. But the first thing that comes to mind for me is deoccupying France after World War II and dismantling the Vichy regime. I think there could be a lot of really interesting historical parallels there for how Ukraine may dismantle occupation regimes and reintegrate its people and also prosecute collaborators and uh, Russian officials who have been living in occupied territories. So I'm really interested to see if I can dig dig into 
how the Vichy regime was dismantled and kind of how, how France worked through that after World War II. And I also think that the Ukrainian government has been very good about this, but very much like the transitional justice or the truth and reconciliation approach that will absolutely have to become a core part of Ukrainian law and Ukrainian policy as they're working through reintegrating occupied territories in this hypothetical scenario, because it's, it's absolutely not as simple as, you know, the lines move back. These people are back in Ukraine because this occupation playbook has been designed for that exact purpose, to make that reintegration seem so difficult that it, it's unattainable. We'll leave it at that. And I'll be closing with a quote actually from your report, Carolina, right at the top and sort of the theme through which you're taking the readers and is very much to be commended and recommended. And that is that this is not a war about land, but this is a war about the people. So Carolina Hurt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. From me, Julia Zoja, and Giselle Donnelly, and Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, give us a follow on Twitter or X at Eastern Front Pod, one word and sign up for our newsletter included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.